I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex has gone and decided to talk to me today. Who have we got on? (laughs) That's my evil laugh. Because Phil is here, Phil Weir, naval guru, boaty king, and you're going to suffer. Phil, <laughs> welcome. Thank you very much, Alex. Oh, Glad to be here. As tell always. everyone why you're here and what boats you're going to talk about today, because this is going to be epic. Well, uh, I am here to talk about uh, my new book, Dunkirk and the Little Ships. So it's just full of boats, just for Alina. In fact, I think I, I advertised it to her as, uh, um, as Dunkirk and the boaty things. Um, yep. just Whole to really... of boaty things coming at her there's, right now. There's hundreds of them. Yep. Absolutely no way to get away from it. Okay. <laughs> Surrounded. Help me. <laughs> If anybody starts hearing a clicking noise in the middle of this podcast, that's me signalling for help. Do you know what's brilliant is that Phil messaged me saying, I've written a book, should we do a podcast? And I was like, yes, because that will wind Alina right up. And then we went (laughs) and cackled amongst ourselves and then broke it to you. So we have been enjoying this already for weeks. Thanks very much. I appreciate that. Um, I've seen the book. It's epic. I love it. It's such a nice little book. It arrived just as I was going off. Where was I going off? Italy, I think. I took it with me. And it was amazing. It's a real nice little companion on the aeroplane. So, let's start at the beginning. (laughs) Let's get this over with before Alina (laughs) does something to herself. Right, okay. There are lots of people listening that love the boaty things and love hearing about Dunkirk. So, frame the scene for us, Phil. Thursday, the 9th of May, 1940. What happens? Well, um, on Thursday, 9th of May, 1940, um, Britain is in a bit of a crisis, basically. Um, the Germans had invaded Norway uh, a little while before. Um, things had not gone terribly well up there. Um, they'd had to evacuate south and central Norway. Um, there were forces uh, still in northern Norway still fighting on, but it uh, it really wasn't looking good, and uh, Britain was basically in a, a degree of political crisis. The, the government of uh, uh, Neville Chamberlain was being seriously blamed for this, and um, the opposition had brought in uh, a motion to, uh, you know, basically, <clears throat> basically a motion of no confidence in the government, and, uh, and Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain was fighting for his life, and I mean, this this wasn't um, the only political crisis that had been going on with the Allies either, because, uh, of course, 
with the Soviet Union invading Finland. Um, there'd been a lot of allied, allied prevarication about whether to, um, to go to war with the Soviet Union, and, uh, and the, the French Prime Minister had been uh, brought down you know, literally you know, a month or two earlier. Um, so effectively at that point, politically, neither of the allies are in great shape. Um, and it's, it's a slight understatement. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Um, so, yeah, basically, um, both prime ministers are effectively, well, um, French prime minister is already gone, and the, um, and the, the British prime minister is, is pretty much you know, on his way out as well. Uh, of course, you know, famously, Neville Chamberlain won the vote of no confidence, but um, <laughs> nothing his, else. His, co- his coalition was about to collapse around him, and uh, it was you know, basically told that uh, you, know, you need to need to move out for a, uh, a more acceptable prime minister to uh, to other parties. Otherwise, government of national unity goes down. Paving and, the way uh, for my granddad. Yes, indeed, of course. Uh, he is replaced by uh, the then First Lord of the Admiralty, uh, the political head of the Royal Navy, uh, at that point, Winston Churchill. And yeah, yes. That was a role he had in World War One, wasn't it? Let's just bring in two wars of boatiness to wind Alina up now. Absolutely. And yeah, as he always uh, signed himself off to Roosevelt, the former naval person, um, which he... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> is that Teddy? Uh, no, it's Franklin. Ah, okay, because... Teddy was head of the U.S. Navy, wasn't he? Um, yeah, Teddy uh, was uh, very notable, but uh, um, Franklin in the First World War was uh, Under Secretary of the Navy, so as I recall, so he uh, he also spent some time with the, the U.S. Navy. Excellent. Right. Okay. So everything's gone to shit is basically what you just said. Yes. Uh, France is in the process of fighting off an invasion. Talk to us about what is happening to the British and French armies up in northern France. Well, yeah, I mean, it, um, this is the, the grand bit, of course, is that um, with literally the day the British government is collapsing, Germany decides to invade northern France and uh, Belgium and the Netherlands. So uh, you know, blitzkrieg suddenly occurs. And it's, it's one of these sort of incredible plans I'm sure everybody kind of knows. I mean, they, you know, there's sort of great jokes about um, how the French were, were daft enough not to build their uh, the Maginot Line, the great defences on the, uh, the, the French uh, Franco-German border and didn't build it long enough. So the Germans just go around the top. Kind of a myth, because I mean that's uh, that's actually kind of what it was designed to do. It was, mm. it was designed to give France strategic space um, and ensure that the next war is basically fought on Belgian soil and not not uh, not French soil. Nice. So I mean, imagine no line technically works. Um, all you've got to do then, if you're the French army, is figure out where the German army is going to go uh, go through as its invasion route. And of course, you've got, um, you know, the, from the northern end of the, the Maginot Line, you've got the Ardennes forests and up through, and there's the, the sort of central Belgian plain, the Jean Blot Gap, and so forth, um, which is, and the latter's kind of a lot clearer, freer of obstacles and all this sort of stuff. And the, the, the Ardennes are complete sort of nightmare of forests and rivers and all this sort of stuff that's you know, going to slow up an invasion and cause major, uh, major problems, particularly for, you know, in theory, uh, particularly for armoured uh, armored tanks and so forth. So 
the French basically guess that they're going to go through, the Germans are going to go through Jean Blo Gap, um, and through central Belgium, and um, gamble all their forces on there. So you know, the day the Germans cross the border uh, on the 10th, is a couple of hours later, the, the French and British forces uh, you know, charge forwards and um, head towards central Belgium. They also uh, do a bit of a, a sort of fun bit that not many people kind of remember, but they also, uh, the French also send their 7th Army, which is basically their best formation. Um, through two routes, they they go first um, by road up to, uh, or some of them, the mechanised elements, go by road up to Breda in the Netherlands. But they also send um, additional troops, uh, they, doing something the Germans basically can't, incidentally. I'll go into that in a second. But they, they send their, their less mobile troops by sea um, across to the, the Dutch port of Lissingen. Um, so it's... And so it's something the Germans can't do because basically if they try a uh, naval invasion, which they'd actually done with the, uh, with the invasions of Denmark and Norway, they'd, uh, they'd brought most of their troops across on ships. So they try it this time around, you know, the Royal Navy is basically going to sink them so they, they don't bother. <laughs> but, um, so you, you've basically got this, uh, this amphibious force going up, as, uh, up the coast as well at the same time and they, they just sort of, bounce into to Netherlands and central Belgium when, of course, famously, um, the German armoured spearhead, um, and this, this is where we sort of go to the, the, you know, the things that they can't do. They can't send, um, they, because they don't have the maritime lift capability, mm. they get sunk, um, they've got to send their armoured panzers the tanks basically through just charging forward without the infantry backing them up. The infantry is just going to be too slow because they can't do the, the seaborne lift and shift and they don't have mechanised transport for them. So it's the spearhead thrust and they send it through the Ardennes. Partly, a, you know, obviously a great genius move of planning, but you know, um, also slightly by accident because they'd had to change their plans uh, partway through because uh, a couple of German majors out for a little jolly in an aircraft cra- crash-landed in Belgium that winter and uh, basically had the, uh, the whole of the German plan to go through central Belgium on them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's an Germans epic have fail to... moment, isn't it? Just a bit, uh, which of course then leads them to having to obviously change their plan and, uh, and they um, shift into the far more difficult territory of the Ardennes, which um, they proceed to successfully sort of charge through and, uh, uh, and sort of smash their way through the, the lines where they're at their weakest. Cause, I mean, you know, the, the French don't put a great amount of, uh, of defence into, uh, into the, the Ardennes. They don't think anybody's going to go through it um, because the, the forests forest and so forth are too thick. And they right. bounce their oh, way sorry. through to Sedan to and uh, cross the river and start just herring their way round to the, the Channel Coast in order to basically cut off the, uh, the northern Allied armies, the, the British and the French, who are obviously sort of in central Belgium and the Netherlands um, and cutting them off against the Channel Coast. Okay, so Alina, we're still on dry land. Are you with us? I am with you. We're still on dry land. No we're getting boatiness. to the beach now. Okay, so we're getting closer and closer. Right, I'm with, I'm with you. We're at the beach now. Phil, 
preparation to evacuate has begun just before the Germans reach the channel. How yeah. how do they go about it? Well, it's and this this is a fun one. I mean, they they sort of see what's the British particularly see what's coming um, around about the the eighteenth nineteenth of May. It's fairly obvious that the, uh, the Germans have just sort of smashed through right behind everyone and are heading the, heading towards the Channel Coast near uh, near Calais. So what happens is the, the British Commander-in-Chief, Lord Gord, who he's, he's a guy who gets a fair bit of criticism, um, some of it I think probably justified, but... Um, as, as the Duke of Wellington once famously put it, it takes a great general to know when to retreat. And um, but when the moment comes, basically, I think it was, what was he said? Something like, uh, any fool can advance. So it's, it's knowing when to retreat is the, the key mark of a great general. And at this point, Gort does the, does the great general bit. He knows that things are completely screwed and it's time to, to advance, uh, to um, withdraw back to the coast. So he gets in touch with London and says, you know, basically, I'm under I'm under French command, but you've got to give me permission to withdraw. And effectively, they they sort of look at the situation in the War Office and they do so, um, and they they call in the Navy and the the local commander in Dover, uh, Vice Admiral Sir Bertram Ramsay is given command of any forthcoming coming evacuation. And, uh, and he, he basically heads back to his uh, his command post under Dover Castle. He's, he's got this um, you know, set of tunnels under Dover Castle from which he's, uh, he's basically controlling the sector um, the, through the, the Dover Straits. And he starts sort of amassing plans. And I mean... There's a degree to which I won't say some of this is easy because it's blatantly not, but there's there's stuff in place already. Um, Ramsey's command is effectively there to to support the British Expeditionary Force anyway, so he's already got um, sort of civilian troop ships and uh, and batch of destroyers there. And because of, of the invasion, of course, um, forces have been shifting south already. Um, from the, the home fleet and the Humber and so forth, just in case to, to sort of maintain control of the channel. So things have been amassing already, but obviously he's, he's sort of sat there looking at it and he's he's got effectively what he needs is ports, um, particularly because he needs ports to get supplies into to the army if they're ever going to try and break back out again. Or alternatively, if you're going to lift a lot of people in a short space of time, then you need ports. You, you've got to get them straight on the ships because taking people off of a beach is a very slow process because you've got to have small, very shallow draft um, yeah. boats to just sort of go in to the shore, pick people up and ferry them back out to the bigger ships that then take them back across the channel. More on that a bit later. Um, but, the leader's like, yay! <laughs> we're on to boaty bits now. Yeah, we are. We've hit the water. Yeah. You glazing over yet, buddy? Oh, I'm, I'm kind of still here. Okay. I'm, I'm waiting for the snoring. Yeah. 
uh, yeah, he's he's starting to to assemble stuff and figure out what he's going to need to be doing. Um, and obviously, as a, um, he figures that given the Luftwaffe is going to be bombing the hell out of ports, he's probably going to have to take some people off the beaches as well. So he starts looking to assemble um, shallow draft boats. I mean, initially. They alight upon um, uh, sort of 50 or so Dutch barges um, that have evacuated the Netherlands as the, the Netherlands sort of surrenders when the, the Netherlands falls on the 14th or so. Um, and they, you know, the, the Dutch navies come across and various uh, other chunks of, uh, of the Dutch maritime uh, powers has come across, including a, a fleet of barges, which look to be really quite useful. And they just... You know, also start robbing from all sorts of other places. But as I say, first things first, he needs ports, and uh, as soon as the Germans kind of reach the coast, he's he's basically looking at sort of three, four ports. Um, he's There's Calais, which is the nearest to the Germans, Boulogne, Dunkirk, and still at this stage, Ostend in, the, in Belgium, because, of course, the, the Belgians are still fighting, and that's a great port, but you'd have to shift uh, shift the army fairly significantly if you were going to, to head for Frost End. Um, but the, this, these are your, your sort of safe ports that they need to need to hold. So they send a force over to, to Calais to try and help hold that, force over to Boulogne to, to help hold that. So start delivering forces there. Uh, they also start literally um, the, the day day sort of after Ramsey's given command, they um, start withdrawing what are called useless mouths, the, uh, the supply troops, um, the admin troops. Uh, it's just the guys unloading of crap off of transports and supply stuff, isn't it? And yeah, yeah, and the, the lorry drivers shifting stuff out to the, the front, because I mean, obviously the, the army is withdrawn a lot from Belgium, so the supply lines are a lot shorter anyway, so they can mm. start getting shot at people. So, yeah, people start leaving from Dunkirk on the 20th, and I mean, the, the French actually start doing the same. Um, it's, it's seldom remembered, but uh, the French start doing the same at, at the same time. So um, Vice Admiral Abriel, who is uh, Ramsey's opposite number, starts ordering um, his useless mouths out, including, uh, incidentally, a marvellous little story, the, the, um, the remnants of some of the Dutch army who get put aboard a ship called the Pavon and, uh, and sent um, to go and reassemble um, across at Cherbourg as the, the core of a new Dutch army. Um, but unfortunately, the, the convoy they're with, um, the, the Luftwaffe spots them basically uh, on their way out uh, that evening and they get bombed. And one of the destroyers gets hit and has to run aground um, on the beaches at, at Dunkirk itself. And it, if you've ever seen, um, I'm sure you probably remember from particularly some of the, uh, the literature and adverts for the 2017 movie, the, the sort of big three-stack destroyer with the bow blown off of it. Um, it's, it's that. Um, it's her. It's, it's the we destroyer that got the hit. We haven't yet with Alina's education. Ah, uh, well, that's, yeah. that's a kind of middle-sized boat, Alina. So not the big boat, not the little boat, the middle boat. Yeah. That's, yeah, basically. Okay. But it's a um, ship. But anyway, we'll we'll revisit this later. We'll we'll, we'll talk more about destroyers fairly soon. I'm, 
I think we might might actually get Alina's attention with one of them um, fairly shortly, I hope. Is there a Polish person on it? There's quite a few Polish people, actually. About, about 100 or so. Now she's <laughs> listening now. Yeah. <laughs> I hear Poland, I'm in. <laughs> oh, okay. Where are yes. we? We're at the one with the destroyed bell. Um, yes, we're, we're at the, uh, the, the sunk destroyer um, on the beaches. So, yeah, um, I mean, she, she's basically uh, run aground uh, uh, before the um, before the main evacuation begins but yeah I mean, gets hit by a bomb um, her captain runs her aground and, and abandons before the fires reach the, the magazine and obviously the, the fires do reach the magazine and that's why there's a very very large hole um, in the bow and you know, the bow's basically blown off um, so yeah, that's uh, the, one of the escorting destroyers is is hit and sunk. <laughs> Sorry, Alina, the bow is the front pointy bit. That's it's, it's the pointy end. Okay, yeah. not the back, the front. The front. Yes. Okay, yeah. I'm in. Okay, uh, and that's that causes one of the, the great sort of famous scenes on the the beaches, um, and that's kind of one of the things that faces um, British and French troops as they they arrive in Dunkirk and they sort of, you know go onto the beach and see this you know, thousand ton. Um, thousand fifteen hundred ton warship that's just sort of been run aground with a bow blown off of it. It's uh, it, yeah, going to be going to cause quite an effect, I would have thought. Um, but further up the uh, the coast as well, I mean, the, the Pavon also gets hit, runs a gets run aground near uh, Calais, and uh, unfortunately, when when Calais falls, the the remnants of the Dutch army basically gets captured uh, there, and uh, you know it's. So the, that first first attempt at evacuation that first day is, is a bit of a disaster, but uh, but they do sort of keep going, and uh, there's there's a good kind of twenty thousand, uh, twenty thirty twenty thirty thousand uh, men brought out of Dunkirk before you actually hit the evacuation point, um, and they, by about the the twenty sixth they realise that it's pretty hopeless. The uh, the French command system is breaking down. Um, they've, they've lost sort of one of their generals in a car accident, and uh, um, the French commander in chief, General Gamelin, has been fired and replaced by General Vagon, who, I mean, his, his first action is to, to cancel um, an attempted breakout of the, the Dunkirk pocket. So, I mean, you know, it's really not looking good, and the Germans are sort of continually closing in, and um, by, you know, Effectively, the midday on twenty sixth, I think it is, um, Calais falls, and yeah, a few hours later, uh, the order to evacuate, uh, Operation Dynamo, is to commence, is ordered, um, and that's the signal for Ramsey to go. And you know, basically, as a Ramsey's assembled um, his destroyers, which is, as you say, um, and destroyers are these sort of maids of all work for for a fleet. They're small ish. Um, thousand fifteen hundred ton warships uh, that are you know, well armed with guns. They've got torpedoes to hit battleships um, and depth charges to to hit uh, hit submarines. And they're they're sort of you know they're the fun boats, aren't yeah. they? That's what you'd want to be on. They're they're the do it all escorts and uh, yeah. and submarine hunters and all this sort of stuff. And they're fast. I mean they're they're all sort of um, thirty. Five uh, or so knots of uh, speed. I mean, they're 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 very quick, um, very manoeuvrable. They're great little ships. 
So he's, he's got about sort of 30 or so of these. He's got 30 or so uh, troop ships. And again, most of these troop ships are, are all um, cross-channel ferries. They're all, again, in the sort of 1,000, 2,000 ton range uh, displacement. They'll each carry about a thousand people. The, the the troop ships you could probably get usually get about sort of six seven hundred aboard a destroyer um, because obviously the the destroyers are warships. They've got guns and um, cramped passageways and all this sort of stuff. Whereas the the troop ships are designed to shift people. Um, and bear in mind, as I say, most of these these troop ships um, are the ones that actually brought the the British Expeditionary Force across to France in the first place, so yeah. they're, they're kind of there to to support the uh, support the army, and they basically get underway on the twenty sixth, and the evacuation really starts in earnest. With regard to the the whole sort of evacuation, um, as I there, you've got basically now three hundred and change thousand men sat trapped on the beaches and in the port at Dunkirk. You've lost um, Calais, you've lost Boulogne, so you, you're now pretty much down to Dunkirk and you really can't reach Ostend. Mm. And the, the Belgians are warning that they're going to collapse fairly soon, which they do on the 28th, so that blows Ostend down. Um, and as predicted, the Germans have, have battered large amounts of the, uh, the, the port facilities at Dunkirk. So looking at a fairly tricky situation, and um, yeah, initially it's the destroyers and the troop ships going over um, yeah. from Britain and um, getting people out of the port and um, starting to to use their own lifeboats basically to to ferry guys off the beaches. Um, but obviously they need to speed up the the process of of getting people off the beaches, uh, particularly. I mean, they, realistically, as they, what you what you need is almost a a, a timetable like uh, you know, train service. I mean, you know how the the underground works. It's you get a you know, couple of bunch of ships in there, moor them up, um, load them up, get them out, reload the the port with people, get ships in there, um, load them up, get them out. And you need a, a smooth flow of, of people and ships going in and out um, to get the maximum effect um, of, of getting people out. And then obviously at the other end, unload, um, you know, refuel, rearm if necessary, um, and head back across. So it's, it's all got to got to try and work almost to a timetable. Now that sort of timetable is put together by a Captain Michael Denny on. Um, on, <clears throat> on Admiral Ramsey's staff, um, and of course this this timetable is is kind of reliant on on you know people not being bombed, which is well, <laughs> not only that, but is it not pocket. utter carnage? How yeah. realistic is it to establish a timetable and try and get people to stick to it? It's phenomenally difficult, um, and there are interruptions. There are, is confusion. I mean, they they do incredibly well at this. Uh, it, Given the circumstances, um, given you've got one damaged port that's constantly under, well, fairly consistently under air attack while it's uh, during daylight hours, increasingly as the Germans get in, you know, artillery starts hitting as well. So 
they do remarkably well. Um, they really do. But yeah, I mean, it, it's, there are interruptions as, um, you know, times when, um, they think that the port is closed. So they, they send people to be on the beach when it's, you know, the port's fine. And it slows thing, pe- things down by sort of tens of thousands of people. They, they could probably have got, you know, um, either more people out or, uh, or, you know, people out slightly earlier. Um, if, they hadn't been you know, been under constant attack, and there've been all these uh, these sorts of problems. But yeah, it's um, it's phenomenally diff- difficult. But they do very very well at it. Um, but yeah, they they know that they need more um, you know, more small boats to get people off of the beaches as well as the ports. Because Dunkirk by this point is is now sufficiently damaged as a port that there's really only one bit that they can really use and that's the the breakwater mm. famously the mole um that uh, they don't actually exist it's not actually generally used for ships mooring so um they have to kind of test it with uh, with, with one of the troop ships first to see if you can actually tie a you know 2000 ton ship to it without it just sort of collapsing yeah um which re- remarkably actually managed to uh, to survive and continues to do so but yeah th- that's kind of the logistic difficulty that they've got so they start trawling for all sorts of boats um they start off really with literally anything that floats in the the southern naval ports i mean you, you're talking lifeboats from ships under refit um, so the, the lifeboats of the flagship of the home fleet get nicked <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and taken across. Ramsey's personal admiral's barge gets taken across and um, gets sunk. I don't know if they <laughs> I'd, I'd have wanted to have been the young sub lieutenant in charge of that one, but yeah, the <laughs> Ramsey the one breaking the news to us. <laughs> yeah, sorry, sir. Um, I, I regret to report that, uh, that I lost your admiral's barge. <laughs> Oops. Ouch. Although. Had it painful. made it back, you'd have wanted to cruise back into a British port on that, wouldn't you? Well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, that that would have been uh, you know decent homecoming there. But yeah, unfortunately, he um, yeah it, he sank it, uh, <laughs> or or rather, somebody else did. Um, so yeah, that's the the initial bit. But simultaneously, they they realise that um, they're going to need more than that. But fortunately, um, on about I think it's the fourteenth. So give or take about the same time that Sedan is being um, being taken. The Admiralty and the, the Ministry of Shipping put out a, a call on the BBC and say, look, um, if anybody's got a boat that's over 30 foot long, um, please can get in touch with us and, and register it because we're – the initial intent is that they're going to need it for um, just for sort of harbour patrols and, uh, and you know, ferrying <laughs> Guys like urgency of the request kind of crap on that though well yeah um it's they all of a sudden realize that this is going to be absolutely perfect for you know taking people off uh, off of a beach so remarkably enough by by about the 26th they've got you know, this this list of, uh, of boats that they've uh, they think will be suitable anyway um, this is all organised by a chap called uh, Rear Admiral Lionel Preston, by the way, uh, head of the small boats pool. And, um, yeah, he, he sort of says, 
says to Ramsey, you know, got this list um, of, uh, of small boats that we were going to use for just general harbour duties and so forth. Yeah. Mm. That, that's suitable for us? And, well, yeah. So they, they then sort of send um, Minister of Transport guys and um, sailors from, uh, from Chatham down the Thames with orders to just um, nick anything off of the list uh, and <laughs> anything else that's suitable as well. At and, what point um, do the people who own the boats realise what they're needed for? It takes a while. Um, I mean, there's this famous story of, uh, of one guy who actually spots, uh, and I think it might have actually been you know, naval sailors, taking the damn thing, taking his boat away off up the Thames, and he chases it up as far as Teddington Lock, I think it is. That's and, quite uh, a way. <laughs> and he, he sort of uh, catches up with them there and uh, suddenly finds himself confronted with what I suspect were probably uh, you know, a bunch of guys with guns and in uniform saying, yes, this is entirely legal what we're doing. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> 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 and just yeah. sailing off in his uh, off in his boat. I mean, they're you get the, the the sort of famous bit from the the 1958 film of, uh, of them uh, of people um, taking their own boats up to and particularly assembling at a boatyard called Tufts Boatyard um, and famously that that does actually happen and some of the the boat crews you know, the boat owners take their ships on further to to Chatham which is the the first assembly point where they then get handed to naval crews because key myth of course um you know it's that it's all civilians manning their their own ships and uh, and vessels and so forth and it's kind of not it's it's sailors out of the chatham barrel selling a little or a lot Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Thanks. So um, is Lytola different because he's an ex-merchant? Mariner. Lightoller, well, Lightoller's a fabulous just, story. <laughs> or did um, he just do whatever the hell he wanted? Because that's kind of the guy he was. Well, uh, a bit of both, really. Yeah. Um, I, as you say, Lightoller's just a fabulous story. Um, senior surviving officer of the Titanic. Um, he, two years later, it, because he, of course, as a, as a White Star Line officer, he's, he's Royal Naval Reserve as well. 
uh, he gets called up and he's, he's on another liner uh, that gets turned into an armed merchant cruiser um, yeah. to do the, the Northern Patrol, the, the blockade stuff. And uh, and she runs aground, I think, in the Orkneys. Uh, so he's on another line of the guest. This is the theme emerging, isn't there? Just slightly. Um, and he, he then shifts across to HMS Campania, which is another converted liner, but this time um, it's the, the Grand Fleet seaplane carrier. Um, and he's, he's, he's a navigating officer, and he kind of gets bored with uh, with chugging around at sea and likes the look of these aircraft. Um, and he finds out they're, they're having difficulty still um, getting accurate navigation over water. So he, he sort of says, okay, um, do you mind if I have a go? So they, yeah, okay, uh, yes, sir. Let's pop in the, the back here and, uh, and see how we go. And it, he helps pioneer over water navigation for the Royal Naval Air Service. <laughs> He's great. <laughs> it, he they yeah after a while on Campania um, doing the, the naval aviation bit they they basically give him a destroyer um, and in fact they give him a couple of destroyers because one of them gets sunk yeah theme again <laughs> um, he, he gets sunk in one and he in slightly controversial circumstances sinks a sinks a U boat himself that's um, right yeah and uh yeah he, um he ends the war as a as a royal navy commander so i mean he's he's already basically got a, a royal navy rank um which also makes him rather unusual and um he sort of retires from the sea after that and uh and goes into property speculation or something like that i think it is um but obviously owns this this little former admiralty yacht um sundowner and he, when he uh, when he hears that uh, that you know, the evacuation is going ahead, he uh, he drops off to uh, to Chatham and says, "All right, I'll take her over." And you know, not least because he's a, a retired naval officer, they sort of go, "All right, then, not a problem. Here's some charts. Go for it." Um, so he and his son, uh, who I think is in the navy, you know, there's a photograph. Of, uh, he's got two boys, hasn't he? I think I get two or three. I mean, the, views, yeah. this is. Yeah, this is the, uh, the the interesting bit because, of course, um, notably, he is the the great model for uh, Mr. Dawson, the um, Mark Rylance character in the 2017 movie, uh, the Christopher Nolan job, and the the whole sort of story about the the dead son in the RAF. Um, that's that's Lightoller. Um, Lightoller's youngest son. Was a yeah. uh, flight lieutenant, I think, on Blenheim bombers. Three stars. Uh, I've looked it up. Yeah, yeah, and was shot down on the one of the first raids of the war um, against the, the German fleet in Wilhelmshaven. Mm-hmm. So yeah, the the, the sort of um, you know, dead son and the uh, the RAF. That's 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 Lightoller, and similarly the son and the uh, the, the Sea Scout. Although the uh, young Sea Scout called uh, Gerald. Um, in real life actually survives and <laughs> gets back. Um, but yeah, um, Lightoller, his son and, uh, and, a, and a young sea scout just take Sundowner over and they bring back 113, I think it is, men, um, from, it's uh, from sharp, beaches. It's doesn't it? And it's, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story. But they, he, he manages to, to get 
So, I mean, again, that's the, the story of the, the, the son sort of teaching him manoeuvres and so forth, or you know, giving him messages from beyond the grave. And, uh, yeah, the, I think no his one, name was it, Brian, it, yeah. the youngest one, and I think it was the first day of, or the second day of the war. Yeah. Second yeah. day of the war. Yeah, that's that's the one. Um, so, yeah, they, I mean, that's, that's, that's a, an absolutely incredible story. I mean, he wasn't the only one. Um, you find that because there's a lot of trawlers take part in the, the evacuation and a lot of them, again, not least because a number of their crews had uh, R&R amongst them anyway. Um, yeah. So they get to go across the, there among the, the key ones. There's a couple of lifeboat crews go across out of the, is it, uh, oh God, is it something like 19 lifeboats, R&LI lifeboats. Two of them are, are sort of self-crewed by their own crew. Um, there's a um, London fireboat. She still survives, by the way. Um, Marvellous little uh, little vessel. Goes across um, under the, the command of you know, the, the fire brigade, basically, and the, her own crew take her across. Mm. So it's, it's not certainly not unheard of for, the, uh, for civilians to take their own boats across, but it's comparatively rare, and most of the crews do do basically come out of Chatham Barracks and are um, very young officers enlisted, um, sailors in the Royal Navy. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they sort of do this mass, start this massive trawl after the, the I think just after the 26th. And some of them start arriving in a trickle beforehand, but really the, the, the key point where they, they hit the, um, the marvelous sight that you kind of get from the, uh, um, Christopher Nolan movie where um, you get the, the small you know, flotilla of small ships coming across, you know, I see home and all this sort of you know, stirring music. That's that's really sort of around the 29th. Mm. Um, the, they really start to hit in, no, in numbers. Um, and it's you know, a whole range of boats, as I say. You get, uh, get fire boats, you get tugs, trawlers. Um, notably, the, I mean, the, the Navy... Uh, dig up their prototype, uh, largely prototype landing craft. Um, <laughs> they've really only got about sort of 14, 15 of these things, and they send about um, you know, most of them across to uh, to uh, Dunkirk to. So they figure out that uh, landing craft, you know, um, supposed to be driven up onto a beach, drop the bow, and uh, and let troops off. Could that work? Bring them back off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah, and it does. Um, does really quite nicely, but I mean that's that's another one that uh, that tends to be forgotten about a bit. But yeah, they they do send um, send their prototype, prototype landing craft across, and it's it turns into a, an absolutely formidable operation. So you know, the initial expectation is um, from Ramsey's side is that they're going to maybe have about three days to get forty five thousand or so off, hmm. and in the end, you know, the, the weather holds far better than they anticipated. The defences hold far better than they, than they anticipated, and they get nine days. And they do actually basically pretty much get everybody off. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, how many do they get off, and how much equipment do they get off? I'm guess, guessing that's a jettison a lot. Yeah, they, they get – certainly the, the British Expeditionary Force um, is largely uh, outside of – some who are, you know, very few who are left behind in the uh, in the rear guard. Um, essentially, the the British Expeditionary Force is 
effectively withdrawn by um, the morning of the 3rd. Um, and they they go back one more night. Um, you know, the, again, famous scene from the, the Nolan film mm. where uh, Kenneth Branagh stood there going, I'm, I'm staying for the French. And, I mean, they... It wasn't quite that impromptu. I mean, there, there was a certain level of debate over whether they would or not. But yeah, they 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 came back for one final uh, day. Ramsey was aware that his his force was on the brink of exhaustion. I mean, they'd had um, ships' crews breaking down through through exhaustion already, and had to withdraw some ships just through crew fatigue as well as um, damage and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, He's, he said, you know, basically, I can I can really only send them across this one last time. So they do um, on the night of the third, fourth, and bring out another sort of thirty or so thousand French. But I mean, the the, the French had already been withdrawing their own troops anyway, um, and as to a degree had uh, the, the British had been helping there. So it's again little known, but the the French supply uh, a the the uh, what is it called the Pas de Calais flotilla under a rear admiral Marcel Landrio um, of again destroyers trawlers small boats and so forth um, under under Ramsey's command and, and it's more than a hundred thousand French get off as well don't they oh god yeah I mean it's yeah, uh, yeah not of a hundred thousand the the total numbers brought off are, is three hundred and thirty one thousand something like that. Mm. Um, and yeah, as you say, it's uh, north of a hundred thousand French, about one hundred and twenty thousand French, and the the rest of them is is the, the British Expeditionary Force. So it's you know really quite substantial, um, you know, massive evacuation that they managed to achieve. And when they they finally pull out um, the, the destroyer Shikari, is the the last ship out HMS Shikari. Uh, and they, um, the French general sort of turns to the captain and says, "There's, you know, um, about ten thousand. I think there's about ten thousand men left." And he, he was short by you know, about thirty thousand. Uh, there's about forty thousand French troops left that, uh, you know, they're exhausted. Their ammunition's exhausted. The, the defences are about to go. And, uh, and later that morning. Um, Admiral Landre, uh, uh, Admiral Abriel and, uh, and Admiral Ramsey sort of sit down for a conference and obviously Abriel is, is reluctant but they, they concede that that's it, they can do no more There's, you know, and the order is, is given that they can surrender Dunkirk So and Dunkirk thereafter falls but uh, it's it's been a, you know, at that point a phenomenal operation I have to ask you, right, so let's do a couple of quick fire questions. <laughs> <laughs> and you know I'm going to screw you with one of these. Right, your favourite little ship when you were writing the book? Ooh. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's probably going to be uh, Light Hollow's Sundowner. I mean, the the whole story surrounding it is, is just... Oh, I love marvelous. it. I, because he is a piece of work, and I don't mean that in... Um, like a derogatory way, he just is a formidable bloke, isn't he? And he just takes no crap off of anybody. It's, yeah, I mean, and it's it's a story you just you'd have trouble writing um, as fiction. It, you, it would look preposterous if, yeah. <laughs> if you went through 
you know, Charles Lightoller's life. Um, Even like the PTSD after Titanic as well. Like, the, I think he's, there's a night his wife finds him just shivering in a bath of cold water and stuff. I mean, he wasn't unaffected by the things that happened to him, but just, just like the little engine that could, isn't he? Oh yeah, it's an absolutely incredible guy. Um, and yeah, it's an incredible story. And you know, sadly, as you say, loses at least one of his sons. I think possibly both of them. I think. I think the son in the navy gets killed before the end of the war as well. Um, sadly, but yeah, they they then um, go on. And I mean, his his wife's quite formidable, and she uh, I think at the age of something like eighty, um, you know, piloting sundowner across the channel um, for for one of the. Um, reunions of the the Association of Dunkirk Little Ships. They're, they're sort of um, five yearly crossings where they they sort of gather everybody together and uh, gather as many of the ships, little ships, as possible together and go across the across the Channel. And yeah, she she's still doing that at you know, age of eighty. <laughs> and yeah, it was the the eldest son is Roger, and he was killed in forty five. It was a particular raid that name escapes me, but he he was on a torpedo boat, wasn't he? Yeah, that's yeah, that's the one. Yeah. Okay, Phil. Not to yes. put you under any pressure. British army was saved by little boats. True or false? Um, <laughs> You're like, oh my god, I cannot give you a quick answer to this. It's kind of, sort of. Um, don't get me wrong, the little ships and the, the small boats are vitally important to the, the evacuation, as, a, as I kind of mentioned, because you've got to get um, people off of the beaches. But I mean, the, the absolute bulk is, is carried out by uh, the destroyers and by the, the troop ships. Um, yeah, something like two thirds of, of the total. Um, are brought out by the larger vessels. Um, obviously, you, you can't quite get a full tally of what the, the little ships do because um, when you look at the, the final tally, the, the official final tally is um, people who were unloaded in, uh, in Britain. Um, and of course, many of the little ships didn't unload too many, if any, people in Britain. What they did was ferry people out yeah. to the bigger ships. So... Um, a lot of them shifted a lot more men than would immediately appear if you look at the the final tallies. But yeah, the the, the bulk of of people leave um, the vicinity of, of Dunkirk aboard larger vessels. So why are we so enamoured with the little ships? Well, um, a, a lot of it is partly to do with the, the, the sheer romance. I mean, mm. um, it's it's just such a terrific story that it keeps making itself in, into to films and, uh, you know, starting off in 1942 with, with Mrs. Miniver, the, the multi-Oscar winner that year, um, where the, the, the husband of, of Mrs. Miniver takes his, his little boat across and, uh, and gets shot up a bit at Dunkirk. Um, obviously, the, the 1958, Movie with uh, with Bernard Lee and um, Richard Attenborough as uh, the civilians taking their boats across, and you know, still out to 2017, where uh, Mark Rylance does the uh, does the Charles Lightoll a bit, but don't mention that he was a um, Naval Reserve officer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, kind of missed that bit. Um, 
So, I mean, it's, it's a spectacular story. It's, it's you know, got the, the great romance, the, the sort of civilian factor, civilians are involved. It kind of gives a, an everyman feel to the war for a start. Um, you know, the, you get the, the little ships eulogized by, uh, by the likes of J.B. Uh, Priestley, who famously, uh, you know, talked about, I mean, this was primarily actually, he was talking about, um, the little holiday paddle steamers that were um, had been taken up as minesweepers that went across. Um, and his, his sort of favourite one, the, the Gracie Fields, was actually one of those that was lost at Dunkirk. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, marvellous uh, little radio broadcast about uh, the, the, the little ships, the little steamers who made their journey into hell and came back glorious and all this sort of thing. And, I mean, it, it just resonates but it also kind of keeps resonating um, because inevitably the the little ships themselves are sort of apart from Dover Castle kind of thing (laughs) which is a bit difficult to get rid of um, it's they are some of the 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 key surviving uh, material from from the evacuation the the destroyers uh, were obviously you know very hard Pressed over the uh, over the war, um, and became militarily obsolescent as well. So a lot of them were scrapped. Uh, a lot of the cross-channel ferries and so forth that, that had been the troop ships again, commercial imperatives and age get to them. They get scrapped, and it's really because, of course, you know, there's no great commercial imperative, and, and you know, people love their their river boats and so forth that they own. Um, they're, they're just sitting yeah. there going, do they? Yes, they do, Alina. <laughs> yes, they do, I, Alina. <laughs> I, I know this seems strange to you, but do you're, they you're really? To... People yes. love their boats, Alina. Where can um, we go to see um, little ships from Dunkirk? Um, all dotted around the country. Um, and they, a lot of them are all sort of in private hands. Um, okay. So, I mean, you've got a motor torpedo boat, and she's in private hands. I forget where she is. She's somewhere on the Medway, I think, MTB 102. Um, but, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of them still sort of around the Thames area. Um, but, yeah, largely in, uh, largely in private hands. But, I mean, there are others that, uh, that aren't. Um, Medway Queen, one of the paddle steamers, um, is sat on the Medway uh, as, a, as a little museum-type ship these days, uh, being restored. Uh, there's also the Princess Elizabeth actually in Dunkirk itself. Um, she was actually um, filmed, as, again, as part of the, the Nolan film. Um, what else? Uh, you know, you've also got... There's actually a... And here we go. Alina, wake up. There is a surviving destroyer from Dunkirk uh, in Poland. The uh, the Polish destroyer Bliszkowica. Apologies for uh, for the pronunciation. Sorry, Alina. Um, yeah, she she took part in the evacuation. Doesn't actually um, have a, a troop tally of, of people brought back. Uh, her primary uh, her primary role was basically anti aircraft cover and, and anti e boat cover. Um, protecting ships that were, were basically taking troops back. And, I mean, she, she ends up uh, towing a couple of, uh, of ships um, in the direction of Dover when they get hit and damaged and so forth. 
But yeah, uh, she is the last surviving destroyer of Dunkirk, and you can go and see her in uh, in Gdynia, I believe, uh, as a museum ship in Poland. Um, so yeah, there's there's a fair few around the place, um, but a lot of them, as I say, tend to be in private hands. But they do assemble fairly frequently. I mean, there there are sort of smaller get-togethers almost annually, um, and they'll they'll be uh, turning up for things like the big river pageant for the the Queen's Jubilee. Um, it was a it was a big event for them, and as I say, there's their five yearly um, get together as well, the, the five yearly commemorative crossing that they've been doing um, at least since I think 1950. Actually, was, uh, was the first time they did it, but the um, the Dunkirk uh, Little Ships Association was put together in '65, so that took a little bit longer. Um, but yeah, there there are quite a few of them around, and uh, and you can go and see them, and you will find them frequently out uh, out and about at, uh, at big events. Lots so thank there. you for such <laughs> a wonderful, insightful chat with us. <laughs> you, you are so ungrateful. <laughs> no, I'm trying to find my words here. Right, I'm just. I would just like for you to tell our listeners where they can get hold of your book. What is it called? Can you please remind us? The book is called Dunkirk and Little Ships. Um, it's got a few slightly bigger ships in there as well. Um, but uh, it's yeah available from Amazon, from Waterstones, from all good bookshops. Um, I believe it's being stocked by uh, a number of museums. I think the uh, National Maritime Museum will have it once they're reopened. I'm vaguely hoping that Dover Castle might stock it and a couple of others. Um, so, yeah, it is it is out and about there in, in all good bookshops, Amazon and so forth, um, in paperback or, of course, uh, um, you can get it in, uh, in e-version as well. Fabulous. Thank you so much for joining us, Phil. Thank you, Phil. I've had a great time. (laughs) Join us tomorrow when Helen King will be with us to talk all about fake medical history in the ancient world. Do you know what annoys her, having put many, many years into writing about Hippocrates and ancient medicine, is the amount of nonsense memes that go around on the internet, misinforming you about the ancients and how they looked after their bodies. So we've addressed a number of them and had a great time doing it, so don't miss that. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.